Welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. Some say we live in a post-truth world, embedded in environments of information abundance, where competing narratives are woven together to produce a multiplayer tug-of-war web. Making sense of what's going on in the world has never been so difficult. Mainstream news outlets and established institutions are known to push narratives that are at times at odds with the truth. Our digital technologies have helped us get us into this mess, and they will likely help us get out of it. Our guest today, Mike Ilias, is one person exploring what that might look like. Mike is the founder of Idea Markets, a stock market for credibility that's currently under development. His team hopes to align financial incentives with the credibility of publishers to help combat misinformation and to really make the truth pay for those who seek it. We have a reasonably wide-ranging conversation. We cover the promise of distributed ledger technologies, aka crypto, decentralized finance or DeFi, idea markets and aligning financial incentives with truth-seeking, truth as an ordering force in the world, China's panopticon, the logic of nonviolence, and even UFOs and undervalued ideas. You can find Mike on the internet at mikeelias.com, at ideamarkets.org, or on Twitter at HarmonyLine1. And all of those links uh, can be found in the show notes. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Mike Ilias. All right. Well, uh, Mike, thanks for being here. Um, I think I came across you on Twitter maybe a year ago. Um, I'm not sure when. Like Twitter has this weird thing of like this person just pops up and then you decide to click follow and then they're like injected into your life. Um, and uh, I've been a fan for a while. Uh, I really like the, um, like the diagrams that you do. I think you're using like you. the iPad or is that, is that right? Yeah. 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 I, I really like that. It's like a, it's a good aesthetic. It's clean, but also, um, rough, you know, like, cause it's, yeah. it's thoughts. Um, so you've inspired me there. I've nearly, I've nearly bought one, but anyway, that's, that's on the side. <laughs> um, but that being said, I still don't know much about you. Like how have you come to be doing what you're doing, talking about what you're talking about? Um, so if we could just begin with, um, I guess a bit of your background, just a, you know, maybe intellectual history or, you know, what you've been up to for the past few years, how you've come sure. to, let's say the crypto space, um, where that excitement came from. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll go back to my interest in my, I guess my intellectual pursuits really began with psychology as a, as an early teen. And that progressed all, you know, throughout high school. And it was really what, what really ignited that was the germ that eventually became the seduction community. I was in high school. I was kind of weird. I got shot down by the girls I had crushes on. And I was like, I want to figure this out. My, my, my approach to problems was just figure it out. You know, there's something that I don't get here. Uh, so I went online and I Googled it and, you know, read all about the psychology of love and attraction and all that stuff. And it put me on this self-improvement, uh, psychology path, uh, very early on. And that kind of evolved gradually into, uh, meditation and spirituality and philosophy. And then I, 
begrudgingly went to college and, and studied philosophy there because I had several years head start and it was a breeze. And um, my first love really is music, though I haven't made a profession out of it. And this sort of interaction between uh, philosophy and spirituality and crypto all kind of came together at a certain point. Um, I knew, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to have the ability to work remotely, that the nine to five office thing is kind of a scam. You don't get paid to commute. There's no particular reason you need to be at a particular place. It's just, uh, it's time to retire that. And in developing my skill set for working remotely, I would get, you know, odd jobs here and there, executive assistant, things like that. And I ended up getting hired as a COO to what became an ICO company in the hot summer of 2017, when that was like the first big boom. And uh, yeah, right. I was fortunate to... That was such an exciting time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I didn't really, I didn't appreciate it back then because I was brand new. But uh, I, I was fortunate enough to avoid uh, the scammier end of things. The company I worked for was founded by Stanford faculty, so I got to name drop that all the time. And uh, we, were, we were, ended up being pretty late to the game, so it didn't get to be well known. But I, in the course of that job, came to understand what the crypto industry was all about and found it really exciting. And the intersection of uh, psychology and crypto happens in this place of incentives that uh, blockchain technologies allow us to sort of tinker with incentives and create new incentives in ways that have never been possible before. And uh, that's really exciting to me and kind of where I, uh, where I find my stride in, in this industry. I think um, the listeners probably have a, there's probably a big um, variance in how much people know about crypto. Some might be, okay, you know, I'm might know it deep, deep. Some okay. may know a lot about it. Some may just have heard about Bitcoin and um, know that this might have promise or it might be a joke. So cool. could you just talk briefly about um, the promise of cryptocurrencies? Well, I, I wouldn't say crypto, but just like this, you know, distributed ledger technology. Yeah, and yeah, I'm very happy to. Yeah. I have a a short spiel for that. And it goes like this. (laughs) Uh, Basically, if you've seen a red Harry Potter, you know how Voldemort kind of breaks his soul up into horcruxes. So in order to kill him, you have to destroy all these little things that are located around the world. It makes it really hard to kill him. Uh, Blockchain technology, which is what underlies Bitcoin and all the crypto networks, is software that runs on horcruxes. People all over the world keep it alive. You can't kill it just by killing like the Amazon servers or their private servers. Uh, a government can't tell it to shut down because it's in the jurisdiction of many governments and you have to get them all to agree. And they even have conflicting interests. Sometimes they're Iran, China, US, Brazil, Peru, Russia, South Africa, just every, every flavor of uh, political and economic interest uh, has a stake in the blockchain maintenance game. So uh, they're, the horcruxes for the software are so well distributed that it's basically unkillable, functionally unkillable. Uh, so blockchain is this unkillable software uh, that can't be shut down by governments or uh, private companies. 
And uh, I'll I'll pause there for a moment. Is that kind of a good start? That's a great that, that's a great start. I've never heard the Horcrux um, uh, metaphor, but it's it's awesome. Um, it, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Um, so distributing this uh, software or this computational power, this having this network distributed um, has some benefits because it's you know you can't uh, well destroy it. Um, and there are new mechanisms that uh, underpin this that kind of um, that make it that enable it to do things that conventional computing can't. Um, yes. So what promise does crypto have? Because like, hearing that is one thing, but then thinking about the potential implications for how we organize our societies, how we transact, identity, uh, like that's another another layer. Yeah, like hearing that, you think, well, that's kind of cool, but it doesn't really do justice to the the transformational potential of these technologies. Like I, the way Absolutely. I think about it is, it's like the new, like the internet was. It, the internet is the biggest development in our um, for our species since like language of fire. That, like, that's that's what I'm thinking. Um, yeah. Just because of like, like information is necessary for life. And we have access to a lot of it. And computation is, is also necessary for life. And now we can outsource computation. Um, yeah. What crypto or distributed ledger technology, that's too much of a mouthful. I like crypto better because it just like yeah. gets to the point. Um, yeah. That's enabling us to do, to completely re-engineer these like well, internet infrastructure. So what are people exploring in this space? And what promise uh, do these technologies hold? And perhaps just... I'll just flag for people out there that we're in like the exploration phase. Like this is, we don't know, like the reason why we don't have the killer app yet is because this is like the internet in the 1980s. Right. So yeah, we've got a, we've got a while to go, but we're making lots of progress. Yeah, absolutely. What this unkillability offers is the ability to send money to people programmatically. So in the same way that we might, you know, PayPal somebody, well, PayPal can and often does step in and stop your payment from occurring, or they can seize your funds, or the government can tell PayPal to seize your funds. There's this point of failure. There's this requirement that we trust the institutions that handle our money and and help us operationally do business. And with crypto networks, all of those functions are handled completely by unkillable software. So there's no person in the middle who can decide to step in or decide to freeze your account. Uh, since all of the you know, finances and all the transactions are handled by software and there isn't a human who can step in to interfere with it, there's uh, a lot less overhead. For example, you can basically build a bank out of pure software that does all the same things that a normal bank does, only it doesn't have the overhead that a bank has. It doesn't require the insurance. It doesn't require to pay all the bank tellers. It doesn't require to pay the CEO's exorbitant salaries. They're not uh, using your money in ways that you don't approve of. They're not charging you hidden fees and things like that. So you can have a savings account that operates purely on a, a crypto software platform. And that software will lend your money out the other side, just like a bank. And that deposit will earn interest just like a bank. But the interest goes directly to you. It doesn't go to a bank and then, oh, you get a teeny bit. 
So these crypto-based bank accounts can actually yield uh, savings, interest on your savings, that's very frequently 10 to 100 times what a normal bank would uh, be able to provide. And that's free. And it's only at this point a little teeny tiny bit uh, more complicated and unfamiliar than a typical banking experience. That's so getting very, very close to uh, being usable without any expertise or any, any knowledge needed about all the technology underneath it. Does that begin to make sense a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I guess just the fact that these technologies remove the need for third parties, right? Like that's like the yes. like m- most of the time, at least. Um, and that's super useful uh, because it's more efficient. Um, you know, in it, I think because these uh, technologies are underpinned by, you know, maths, crypto, um, cryptography, uh, computation, all this sort of stuff, we can kind of rather than having to trust people, we can say in maths, we trust, or, you know, in, <laughs> uh, I'll just say in maths, we trust. Um, yeah. One thing that, um, this, this idea of banking, um, d- is it DeFi or DeFi? I, I don't know how, to, how it's pronounced. De- DeFi. Yeah. DeFi. It's uh, it's, it's a shortening of decentralized finance and it has the added benefit of sounding like DeFi. Defiance, defiance. <laughs> it's very. I love it. It's a great term. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this um, notion of banking fits right into that. And yeah. that seems to. I, I'm not too familiar with it, but I know that it's getting. It's spoken about a lot on at least on Twitter. Like it's it's one of the hot topics um, yes. or hot developments. Um, so, do you know much about it and what's actually going on in that space? I know a fair amount. Yeah, um, there are a couple things that are very exciting about DeFi. So the banking platform that I just described is an example. It's one of the more basic examples of DeFi. Uh, decentralized, meaning it's not all uh, under the control of a single company or government. It's spread out over the world in all these horcruxes. Finance actually deals with instruments of value. So uh, these sort of software-based uh, banks are an example of DeFi, a very simple example. And once you have this, you can uh, do things that are more complicated than banking. You can redirect the interest to other places. You can create uh, prediction markets that automatically settle when uh, certain data is, is, is reported. You can uh, create automated trading strategies that work uh, on software that nobody can interrupt. You can um, create new lending and credit type mechanisms and swaps and all kinds of fancy derivatives that are really beyond my expertise. But there's a lot of excitement in the DeFi space in particular around uh, exotic financial instruments being kind of replicated on DeFi to extract all these new kinds of, of profits uh, from from this new ecosystem. So that's where a lot of the excitement is coming from. And honestly, my background is not in high-tech finance and it doesn't excite me as much as the people for whom uh, that's been their life's work. But there's definitely a lot of experimentation and interest and and tinkering and uh, and and money making happening about it. So there's there's a big there's a big um, frenzy right now yeah yeah i feel like it's it could 
I'm getting at the idea of it's like the ICO phase, but that you can trust more because it does seem like there's less downside than the ICO craze, which mm. was so brand new. And ultimately, you when when you bought an ICO, which was uh, an initial coin offering, when people were all selling their own token to uh, fund their network. You had to trust the team you were buying the token from to deliver on their promises. And that's not really an innovation in trustlessness, whereas DeFi is creating new ways to make money that are all based on this decentralized open source software. So you don't have to trust people in the same way that you did during the ICO craze. Um, I really, the only thing they have in common is the craze. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people like to make money and this is, you know, an opportunity uh, to do so, but I'm, I'm more interested yeah. in the, um, the technology and just like the implications for how, how we live. Um, me, me too. And I should probably elaborate just for the, for the sake of the listeners who might, might not have as much of a background that, uh, what this decentralized financial software allows us to do, why it's important is we can basically create companies that don't have CEOs, that don't have owners. We can create feedback mechanisms that say, if you do this, you'll get paid. And then you do it and then you get paid. And there's nobody who can say, well, he did it, but we won't pay him. Uh, you can create an exact copy of uh, Facebook, basically, only when people buy ads to put on this network, the money goes to you, not to Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook shareholders. And there's no censorship. Like such things already exist. They're just not widely used for two reasons. One, people like Facebook too much. They don't feel like leaving. And two, the network fees on Ethereum are very high right now because it's kind of at its, at its capacity for all the transactions it can tolerate. But uh, this, that just begins to paint a picture of what kinds of uh, new incentives we can create in society. Uh, does that yeah. make it a little bit more clear? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, we'll dive into you know, some of the work that you're doing in idea markets and all that soon, but I just want to talk I'm more sure about we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, crypto here. Um, I think that this decade could be the turning point for these technologies and will accelerate not only their adoption, but development because of just the instability, right? I mean, yeah. uh, I think as the time of the nation state is coming to an end for a variety of reasons, one being just like global challenges uh, that require global coordination and the fact that we're living in this interconnected world and uh, local, like the actions of one country sometimes might not be able to, forestall um, economic collapse or, you know, a whole array of problems. Like one example that I thought of a few years ago, but now seems to be a lot more real is um, business process outsourcing and, techno and technology automating that. So the Philippines, I think more than 10% of the GDP comes from business process outsourcing. So call centers wow. and all that sort of stuff. And you've seen GPT-3, the, you know, the AI software that can just do incredible things. Um, like that sort of technology will automate call centers and, you know, among many, many other things. And it can do so yeah. in a very short period of time. 
So when a country, you know, derives so much of its um, GDP from these sorts of processes that can be automated overnight, it can bring about, you know, tremendous instability. um, And that could lead to, you know, governments printing money to try to solve problems and yada, yada, yada. So as, as, as these things happen and uh, currencies potentially become to, as they perhaps destabilize, people are like, well, they may think, well, shit, I need to, um, I want my money to <laughs> retain its value somehow. How can I do it? Um, and how can I keep it safe as well? You know, they, they want to be able to ensure that they'll be able to keep it, that no one will be able to take it from them. So I think that just this instability um, and the lack of trust people have in, in governments and the financial uh, instruments that they, you know the government support, I think will really move us to adopt these technologies mainly as a as a out of uh, necessity rather than um, because we want to. Um, so it's a very important time for you know the crypto space, but also just for I guess societies in in general. And I just, I'm, I'm concerned that I, I'm not really concerned, but as, as people start, as people start to adopt these technologies, um, governments will try to crack down on them and then more people will move to them because, you know, the government's cracking down on them and they're like, well, we know we can't trust the government. The government's trying to stop this. It cannot be stopped. And then we're in a, in a bit of a pickle. And one reason I think that I, one thing that I'm concerned about is the state does a lot of good things. Um, it provides, well, more so in Australia than or other countries, maybe the US, but like healthcare, you know, we have free education or something like that. Like the state, you know, public goods, infrastructure, like all states can provide this to varying levels. To, to varying levels. And I'm concerned that with the adoption of these technologies, um, particularly um, the ability to transfer wealth without it being tracked, you know, um, privacy coins like... Uh, Zcash or um, I've got the other one. Is it Monero? Yeah. Yeah. I'm concerned that high net worth individuals who contribute substantially to the tax, to to taxes, they'll just, you know, move it into crypto and it might not be able to be tracked. And then we'll, then the States will be suffering because they they won't be able to um, generate enough tax revenue and it could just not, it, it, it could be detrimental for all. And, I, you know, I, I, I'm of the opinion that people are not entitled to keeping all of their wealth. Um, that they are not respond, like, because they are not solely responsible for the wealth generation, they are not entitled to keeping all of it. Like, yeah. If you've generated wealth, thank you so much for contributing to society. You can keep a, a decent chunk of it, but we're going to take a lot of it to reinvest back into the world because it's the... It's the culture, it's the our history that has enabled you to be where to, uh, that has enabled you to get to where you are. So thank you. So like that, that's my perspective, and one that I don't think is very is shared within the crypto community. Um, yeah, I uh, where I I feel you. Yeah, it's it's kind of uncommon in the, in the crypto community. Yeah, so I'm just it, it's it's a big cause of concern for me because I don't know how we stop that from happening and how we stop people from adopting these techno. I mean, the, the adoption of these technologies is okay, but I think people need to pay taxes or we need new ways in which to fund public goods and to fund um, the, yeah. the needs of the public. Um, anyway, I've just kind of rambled there, but you know, no, I totally feel it. Um, 
Are you familiar with uh, Venkatesh Rao? Yeah, VGR. Yeah, VGR. He said yeah. something recently uh, that I really agree with and love. It was just a few days ago. He said, uh, the problem that the libertarian left has to solve now uh, with blockchain, presumably, is uh, trustless compassion. And I, I've been thinking about this problem for some time. How can you trustlessly siphon money from uh, well-used crypto networks and ensure that it gets into the hands of people who will die without it? Uh, at, at the very, at the very basic level, we have to make survival, uh, a, a human right, basically yeah. right now, if, if, if you're on, if you're on the street, if you're homeless, you're, uh, you're, you're in a great deal of danger on every level, physical, psychological, emotional, if, uh, if trauma doesn't make you homeless, homo, homelessness will make you traumatized at the very, very least. So there's this sort of gun to the head of every single American uh, that, you know, we cannot become homeless because it's, it's, it's very close to death. It's a, it's a real physical threat. It's a real just threat to, to life completely. So uh, ensuring that people in this future uh, blockchain world can survive, there's a, I have hope that this sort of trustless compassion is inevitable because enough people agree with this that uh, software will be built, decentralized applications will be built to fulfill this purpose. And with enough uh, use, with enough consensus, which I think exists, absolutely, um, they will find their way into uh, the infrastructure, into the well-used uh, network channels and everything like that. And I, 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 I do absolutely believe that there is the will and the desire and the ability to take care of people using this technology mm. yeah i hope that we we see some something like a, a universal basic income <laughs> paid through uh crypto when i say universal i mean you know truly global um and i think just on, on this point of you know those suffering um what i think people fail to realize is that well no i think a lot of people realize it but it doesn't really answer our conversation as much but um, empowering others benefits everyone. Yes. Like if when you get someone off the street, when you give them education or access to the internet or access to healthcare, it benefits everyone. Like, yes. And you know, right now half the world doesn't have access to the internet, you know, over like nearly a billion people don't have access to energy, you know, or, you know, electricity. Yeah. Um, and that's just a, it's, a waste in a way like we have all these incredible creative problem solvers scattered around the world that just don't have access to the same opportunities that we do. And if we were to empower them with something as simple as internet access, like if you give, if you give someone internet access, they can learn whatever they, whatever they want. So they can, you know, the, the, the landscape of opportunity extends more 
an incredible amount. It's like the internet Absolutely. grants more opportunity than anything else. And what those people may do, even if it's just, you know, a fraction of a percent, um, you know, that it could result in developments that improve the world, improve the lives of literally everyone. Yeah, so absolutely. it's a, that's, I think that's a really strong um, argument for global wealth redistribution. And it's one that we're not really, this, this idea of global wealth redistribution and kind of empowering the, the, the poverty stricken in other countries isn't really the focus of, I'd say left politics at the moment. It's kind of very, you know, identity politics focused, which is like, it's yeah. still important. I, the way I think about it is like, there's progress, there's like the tail end and there's like the vanguard and we need people to push this way, but we also need to bring up the tail, right? But yeah, the tail yeah. is more important right now um, because we're talking about life and death rather than absolutely um, these more, I guess you could say privileged uh, discussions. Um, yeah. So I hope that, I hope that this, these technologies develop so that we can kind of move uh, in this direction. Yeah, I'm I'm in complete agreement and very interested in those kinds of use cases. Yeah, okay. So I guess we'll just move on to maybe the 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 main course or the meat of the of the conversation. Um you are working on idea markets or yes. I, yeah. So what is the problem we have anyone who's connected to the internet knows that we have a problem with uh, sense making or with figuring out what the truth is. And I think it's a problem that we've actually had for a long time, but given um, internet access and given that everyone has a platform and that they can just spread uh, information, um, this idea of um, truth seeking or fact checking or just getting an idea about what's actually going on. It's really front and center in the minds of, of, uh, I'd say the digitally connected today. Um, there's this idea of living in a post truth world, um, you know, that, that we're living in. Um, so what, I guess maybe we could just begin by like discussing what a fiat narrative is, cause that might be a good place to start. Sure. Uh, I, I, drew the connection between uh, public narratives and fiat currencies uh, because I was talking particularly to the crypto audience that really cares about the distinction between fiat currencies and cryptocurrencies. Um, fiat being every, backed by the government or like government mandated currency. Yes. Every, everybody knows what a fiat narrative is, even if that term isn't familiar. Fiat refers to something being uh, by declaration. So current fiat currencies are valuable because a government says they are and fiat narratives are true because a big media corporation or authority says they are. Uh, and everybody watching this has had some experience of a corporate media or authority saying something is true or perpetuating a narrative um, that is not useful, not true, not optimal, not helpful. Uh, and yet uh, is regarded as the credible thing. The, the, the boundaries of, of credibility are defined by these uh, corporate media gatekeepers. So a fiat narrative is the public narrative that is maintained by 
declaration only by the declaration of these private media corporations and and the authorities that they cooperate with. It's it's funny that Trump kind of uh, with his fake news thing has kind of done us a service. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, let me let me take back my absolutely a little bit. I don't mean to sound <laughs> sound like a like a no, no, know, no, full, no. full throated endorsement. But uh, I, I actually do believe that the veneer of uh, sincerity being taken off of public discourse has had some benefits and has accelerated the um, awakening of, of people in a way and the uh, justified skepticism of people uh, which then leads to people making their own judgments as to relying on authority figures and simply believing whatever they say. And right now, the form of the form that everyone making their own judgments takes is this disunity, this disintegration of consensus. Uh, but underneath that, it's it's people who care more about the truth than about. Uh, fitting in with the status quo uh, perpetuated by corporate media. And I think there's something fundamentally respectable and good about that. Mm. It's um, something that's really been made apparent with this whole coronavirus thing. Like yes. I remember just watching the news and listening to what the who said, you know, well, the health organization, not the band. Um, yeah. The band would have done a better job. <laughs> probably, probably. And I was just watching this. And I'm like, well, that doesn't seem right. Like that, that's, that might sound a bit off. And then I go on Twitter and I read, um, you know, what other people are saying and people who are, you know, experts in uh, complex systems, epidemiology, even part of the VC community and, you know, piecing together like a different worldview that's being presented to me. Like masks are actually good. I mean, I think that's the dumbest, like I cannot believe that that was even put forward. Like, you put a mask on and you blow, you can't feel your hand. You can't feel, you know, um, the yeah. wind on your, like it's, <laughs> even if some gets through, you still don't feel as much like it limits it. So yeah. this, the mind games that, that have been played, it's uh, uh, just ridiculous. But what I found to be incredibly interesting is the power of the swarm of collective intelligence and that people, you know, um, working together, um, distributed, you know, across the world through, through these networks, like the power of, um, uh, well, truth seeking or, you know, the, the epistemic utility there is, is profound and it's one yeah. that we're not tapping into enough. Yeah. Um, and I guess you have an idea that could help us, um, help us find some truth. And to, and to link incentives with this truth seeking, and yeah. we call it a, an idea market. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea behind idea markets is that beliefs are investments. That when we believe something, it's because we think we'll get more benefit out of this alternative than that alternative, and that's not really. Uh, explicit anywhere though it is it is sort of uh implicit when we when we commit to uh 
a position on something, we're, we're placing a bet. If we're wrong, there are objective costs to us. And if we're right, there are objective benefits. And uh, an idea market is sort of a, a mechanism for collective ideological risk management. It incentivizes people to examine uh, all the possible narratives, all the information uh, without a particular regard for corporate media uh, to find what is undervalued, to find what is actually the best uh, of the alternatives, not just what is repeated by a big brand name or something like that. So what, what an idea market ultimately does is it takes it allocates trust to where it's deserved. Right now, the media corporations are trusted implicitly, even by the people who don't trust them, uh, to decide what narratives are legitimate, to decide the bounds of legitimacy. Uh, one example of this is the New York Times recently started talking about UFOs with a level of uh, credibility that uh, they never had before. And the UFO community, even though they all hate the New York Times because they've been ignoring them for 75 years, uh, rejoiced because the New York Times, whether you like them or not, has this, pos this position of arbitership. So the, the point of idea markets is to replace this sort of centralized arbitership by media corporation with democratic arbitership via the free market. People uh, by betting on publishers, essentially, by put, risking capital to say, I trust this journalist or this publisher and what they're saying, and I believe other people will too. Uh, we're inviting people to allocate trust to where it's actually deserved and to create this public signal on a level playing field on which all publishers compete. So media corporations and, you know, joesblog.com are on the same market. And, uh, and when people trust one more than the other, there's nothing to stop one from overtaking the other. Does that begin to make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how is it a, a market? Like, do I buy like, you know, shares, perhaps it's the wrong term, but do I, I invest in these, in these publishers, right? I'm, yes. I'm on this platform, there are a list of publishers and I can choose to invest in them with the hope that there's a return, right? Like I put my money where my mouth is like that. You're trying to. Absolutely. Yeah. So I should, I, I will absolutely explain that next. So if you use Reddit, you have, you have yeah. upvotes that curate the content. Well, the problem with that is upvotes are free. So it's very easily gamed. And Reddit actually uh, you know, accidentally released a report a few years ago in 2015 saying uh, that their most addicted city is actually uh, an, an Air Force base in Arkansas that's famous for its research on social manipulation, social media manipulation and information control and stuff like that. So Reddit is, is well known to be at least somewhat compromised, even though it's still very fun and very useful. Uh, what Idea Markets does is it makes upvotes expensive. What you're doing is all of the all of the listings on the market. On Wall Street, each listing is a company. On Idea Markets, each listing is a primary domain. It's something.com, something.org, 
It's where the publishers live. It's their brand. And when you buy an upvote, uh, you increase the rank of that publisher. You can buy as many upvotes as you like, but they do get ex get more expensive. And in this way, we can rank things in sort of a Reddit fashion, but with a mind to the possibility that if we do a bad job, it will cost us money. And if we do a great job, it could make us money. So it takes the incentives of stock market investing, the requirement for due diligence and carefulness and research uh, and willingness to uh, question preconceived notions and applies it to the sort of democratic curation of Reddit uh, to surface the most trustworthy publications as defined by what people are willing to actually risk money on. So how do the publishers, how does that money get transferred to publishers? To the publishers, yes. So we were talking earlier about DeFi, decentralized uh, banking and decentralized lending. So the entire, all of the software for Idea Markets is a, is a protocol on the Ethereum network, on the main network where all the DeFi action is happening. So when you buy uh, an upvote on Idea Markets, your money gets locked into a, a software bank, basically, that holds it and lends it to other users out the side. And then that money, that deposit that you use to buy tokens, to buy upvotes, earns interest. And like I said earlier, it's 10 to 100 times more than a typical bank account's uh, interest provides. So what the software behind Idea Markets does is it takes the interest that accrues to the deposits that people used to buy upvotes and it sends that interest directly to the publisher for whom the votes are cast. Does that all make sense at yeah, once? Yeah, yeah, so so the bigger the pie, then, then, yeah. So yeah. if I'm, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off. I just want to make no, sure. No, 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 please, make, please. Make it all in one place, make it easy. If, uh, if you're a big Slate Star Codex fan and Slate Star Codex gets a million dollars in upvotes, uh, the interest that accrues to that million dollars uh, goes right to Scott Alexander. And so if, if there's a million dollars and the interest rates will fluctuate, it'll be between $10,000 and $100,000 a year. And that's completely independent of ads, subscriptions, donations, or any of the other very broken business models uh, upon which journalism relies right now. Mm -hmm. So this could, individual bloggers all the way to, you know, the New York Times, these, yes. these huge media platforms can all be listed on these on idea markets. Can and will, yes. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's a level playing field. It's a literal marketplace of ideas with yeah. the incentives of a marketplace uh, so, for the first time in human history. Yeah. And as an investor, how does that, like I buy into this organization or this blogger and can I just, do I get... Um, can I just cash out whenever or do I get yeah. like a dividend? Like how does that operate? You cash out whenever. So the users in the early versions will only profit on speculation. They'll only profit on buy low, sell high, uh, kind of like any other commodity. Uh, so if you think Slate Star Codex deserves to rank a lot higher than it currently does, you buy. And if people who come after you agree and they vote it up, then you can sell it at a higher price. Uh, 
or if you buy and then Scott Alexander commits some horrible crime and everybody sells and you're left holding the bag, then you, you've lost money because the earlier investors have sold out from under you. So it's really modeled after the stock market experience, which people are already very familiar with. Okay. Um, one question I have is there's lots of, uh, there's lots of ideas that I'd bet on, but there's not many yeah. institutions or yeah. you know, media companies. Yeah. So why did you choose to go for the publishers? I mean, there's obviously the, it's easy. It's easier, right? You've got the domain name. It wouldn't be as obvious to bet on ideas and how you'd actually figure out whether or not an idea is good or not. I guess, I guess the public, the, the, the market would do that. But why did you choose to go with publishers? Yes, we do have ideas for how to specifically rank individual ideas. And that is part of you know, the grand vision and, and we'll get there someday. Yeah. But right now, uh, whom to trust is the big pain point of the world. And uh, what we are doing is having people bet on ideas using publishers as a proxy. Because if you are in favor of uh, you know, liberal ideas, then you won't bet on Fox News. You'll find something that represents the ideas that uh, are meaningful and, and important to you, and you will bet on them. And through the increase of their influence, uh, your ideas will uh, gain more visibility as well. So it's, it's really only a, uh, an abstracted version of that uh, in order to serve this, this purpose of allocating trust. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's really exciting as a, you know, a, a quasi publisher, like I blog a little bit and obviously there are podcasts. Um, yeah. so the idea of like having this, um, incentive there to, you know, try to promote truth and the fact that I could make a living off of it, I mean, perhaps, you know, is, is, is quite sure. enticing. Um, Absolutely. yeah, yeah. It's, I've, I've been thinking about this because I've been, we've all been hit with this uh, problem of uh, trying to figure out what the, what the truth is and, or what might be, um, what might be a fact or not. Um, I, I think facts are, it's, it's a weird term. So. Um, yeah, I, I agree. You've probably seen my writing on it, but we can. Yeah. Talk yeah. Yeah. Well, I was about to bring that up. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. Some, uh, it was a bad segue. <laughs> all good. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you, we. What's the problem with fact checking? The problem with fact checking, in a nutshell, is that it's impossible. Um, the the notion of facts is, as far as I know, kind of an enlightenment holdover. It's sort of like uh, an atom of truth it's thought of to be it's thought of to be this uh, this little piece of truth where if you you know stack a bunch of them together you get a big truth but in the meantime uh, this isn't going anywhere this little fact isn't going anywhere uh, the problem is there's no such there's no way to draw boundaries around a little piece of truth so that it's so that it's solid uh, and the closer the more closely you look at what uh, is implied in a fact, the more it looks like a series of judgments. And this is true of every single fact, just based on uh, 
what, what's required. So for example, if you're on a bus, I heard this, I read this story in a book somewhere. If you're on a bus and a little kid comes up to you and starts, you know, punching you in the shoulder and pulling my hair and stuff like that. Uh, you know, your reaction is, uh, oh geez, this kid is being annoying. So there's this fact kid is being annoying. And then maybe the fella across the aisle from you leans over and says, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about Billy. His mother just died and he's just stressed and he's just kind of, you know, letting it out. He's kind of dealing with it. Well, that context changes the meaning of the fact that this kid is being annoying to such a, a vast extent that it can't, it's not recognizable anymore. So when you say this is a fact, you're making all kinds of uh, judgments about what context to leave out, about what context is important. And that context uh, is infinitely variable, constantly changing, and has the ability to make the fact unrecognizable instantly if, if you were to know it or view it from a certain angle. So we treat facts like these little solid, reliable things uh, that are objective and don't involve judgments, but they're actually the complete consequence of infinite judgments, infinite omissions. And uh, the cracks, the cracks in the notion of a fact have now been blown out for centuries and billions of people. And those cracks have become giant crevices and we're all starting to fall through them. Uh, people think uh, we've, we've abandoned facts. Like uh, it's the fault of the people who simply don't believe the facts. Well, there are often reasons to, to disagree with the, uh, the, omissions that were made in order to create this particular fact. There, there are very human and very legitimate reasons to, to doubt things, to distrust people, to uh, disagree with the story that's being used to color a fact. Um, so there's a lot less... Uh, justification for moral persecution on the basis of fact denying uh, than, is, than is happening right now. Uh, the fact people are saying, accusing the deniers of being deniers. They're sort of conducting a, uh, a crusade. Usually it's not a violent crusade, but it's basically, we are absolutely right. You are absolutely, absolutely wrong. And we are just going to hit you in the hammer with this opinion until you submit. Uh, but of course, that doesn't work because it's, it's very disrespectful and uh, it's an affront to people's freedom to and make the backfire effect interpretations. Yes. People actually so, respond poorly to that sort of stuff. I realize I've been, I've been talking a lot about this, but I'll, I'll wrap it up here and say uh, your initial question was, uh, what's the problem with fact-checking? The problem with fact-checking is you have to rely on the uh, person or party or institution that's doing it. You have to trust them. The problem with fact-checking is that even fact-checking is a function of trust. It depends on trust. Because if you don't trust the fact-checker, then you'll have to fact-check that one. And you'll have to fact-check the fact-checker and fact-check that fact-checker. And it's just an infinite regress. So at some point... What the facts are uh, depends on, on trust. 
And uh, that's not to say there are no truths or that things are not a certain way, uh, but that the metaphor of facts is uh, does it discourages consensus because it pretends to be something that it is not. And I, there, there's a lot of kind of esoteric philosophical stuff in there, but I hope it's somewhat clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you know, the who will watch the watchman. It's that classic um, discussion. Um, yeah. And the fact that, sorry for using the word fact, but, you know, there are no, facts. Casual, like, casually bring it on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There are these, um, like, reality is real and there is objective truth, but the question of whether or not we have access to it and whether or not we can actually accurately represent it is a completely different question. Um, yeah. It's a representation problem. Yeah. 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 And this, the way I think about, um, I guess, knowledge or facts is that there's this thing in the world that we're trying to describe, right? Um, or just for those watching or listening, I've got a, I'm holding up a coffee mug, but you know, a better, um, the better metaphor, the better analogy is the the blind men and the elephant. Yes. Um, you know, so there's a, there's an elephant and there are these blind people, uh, and they're all trying to describe what's in front of them. And some guy's got the trunk and this woman's got the tail and then the other person's touching the ears and they all have different ideas about what it is that they are touching. You know, they all think that an elephant is a different thing. Um, yeah. But it's in aggregate that we get a, a picture of what the reality actually is, right? So it's when we combine these perspectives um, that we get a more accurate representation of whatever it is we're trying to understand. And the same is true for, well, everything. It's, it's why public discourse is so important. It's why freedom of speech is so important. And it's why, you know, what you're working on is so important. And it's why we need these... Uh, developments is why we need to update our social like social media because social media is an incredible force for good and force for you know figuring out the truth yeah but it's also it also amplifies um well untruth falsity um well we we don't have a way of easily figuring this out so how do you see these fact-finding technologies, idea markets or others fitting into this social media landscape and um, empowering people to make decisions or to, to, to figure out whether or not they should believe what they're, what they're seeing. Right, absolutely. So the fundamental issue is not that the facts are necessarily unclear or inaccessible. The internet makes basically all the facts of which humanity is aware accessible. Uh, whether people believe them or not, there they are. It's in, in many cases uh, very, very compelling. So what is stopping humanity from... Uh, I'm trying to think of, to say uh, how to say this in a way that is that's very forgiving because I don't believe it's the public's fault at all. No, no. Um, what what is 
what is creating such uh, division and sort of wildness of thought and belief is not the accessibility of facts. It's the lack of trust and also it's perverse incentives. So since media corporations, and that includes social media corporations, profit uh, largely from advertising. And advertising on the internet means page views. And page views means circulation, engagement, things like that. The incentives for the most powerful uh, companies, both corporate media and social media, is to generate engagement. And one of the best ways to do that is to provoke outrage or shock, uh, clickbait, things like that. So the public is sort of being farmed of its attention. Uh, the uh, social media and media corporations and everybody else are fighting to extract attention from the public. And, you know, they they grab the udder, they grab the nipple and they squeeze it. Like, I don't know how many of you people out there, you know, milk the cow or a goat or whatever, but they're, they're, there's a, a deep science now to uh, the extraction of attention, the farming of attention. And having one's attention farmed is not good for the public. It's not good for the people to train people to click on the clickbait, to engage with the outrage, to uh, share and quote tweet and, you know, uh, explode their outrage and get their relatives in a heated discussion that goes on for hours and keeps the New York Times link at the top of your feed is not good for people. It's, uh, it's, we are, we are becoming, to continue the farm metaphor, uh, mimetically modified organisms. We are being trained uh, by ideas uh, to relate to our attention in, in very specific ways. And it is as the crop. It is the public is having its attention extracted by uh, the most powerful and most informed, most skillful advertisers and corporations and uh, social media companies. So there is this perverse incentive. There are these uh, psychoengineering forces uh, working against the public uh, to make them want to give up their attention, to incentivize them to, to give their attention in these ways that benefits them. So uh, your question of how uh, truth-seeking systems uh, work in social media is very much afflicted by this environment where the incentives created by those who profit from the extraction of attention uh, are not even close to aligned with uh, wise uh, personal judgment or epistemic judgment or truth-seeking or anything like that. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. So people are carried along in this uh, social current that is not toward truth, it's toward uh, attention incontinence. It's toward uh, hysteria, it's toward, it's toward uh, these, these profitable things. Uh, so the starting point 
is with the public at a great uh, disadvantage, outmatched, outgunned by a century of marketing research and 20 or 30 years of uh, software research on how that can be uh, most well employed to extract attention. So I hope I've kind of hammered that in somewhat. Uh, but that's, that's the starting point. And I have more to say on, on how things could operate and how idea markets come into the picture. But I think, uh, I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. It's, it's a phenomenon that I think we're all familiar with. I mean, unless you haven't used a computer within you know the past decade, like yeah. I've, there's this pull towards my phone, you know, that I'm just, I'm sometimes I'm, I'm not even aware of it except when I, uh, you know, delete those apps for whatever reason, like Twitter. I think Twitter does the best out of them all. I, I, I think, I think that might be the case. I think, I feel like I'm more drawn to just opening Twitter and seeing what's going on. Um, than perhaps even, uh, Facebook or Instagram. And the fact that we have these technologies who are, you know, trillion dollar companies. So, you know, they've, they've spent, billions and billions and billions and hired some of the smartest people in the world to just get us to look at this stuff more. Like we're fighting a losing battle. Like there's, there's no, like we're only, we're only human as, as remarkable as we are. Like we, we still, we, we are, uh, it's nearly necessary for us to use these devices to survive in this modern world. Right. Like you yeah. can't, it's hard to get by without a laptop or a phone or whatever. Like I see them as like necessary for, for, you know, 21st century society or for existing in 21st century society. But we don't have any notion of control about how we engage with these devices, engage with the platforms and engage with each other through them. Like I, I'm, I'm hoping for like this, um, like an open source hardware movement of sorts where I could actually like, even if I had an Android phone, I don't think I could do what I needed to do. I, or maybe perhaps not easily enough to really control how I interact with it. Like I'd like to be able to, there's so much I'd like to be able to do with my phone, but I can't because I'm locked into this, this, this hardware and yeah. it really does shape my life. Do you know of any open source hardware, like it's, open source phones or? It's, on some, it's not my area. And I'm yeah, not yeah, confident uh, enough of, of what I'm remembering to, to, to share it because it might not be real, but yeah. 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 It's just, I would like to be able to change the color of my notification buttons or. Oh like, yeah. That just cool. yeah. I mean, I, you, you can make it black and white, but there's just. Yeah, so I've, I've I'd like done to that. I highly recommend making it black and white because I've got, I've, I've done that actually. And it makes Twitter a lot less addictive. Yeah. Okay. The the blue and the oh my goodness, it's really it's really hypnotic. So uh, mm. black the black and white I've found really helps. Yeah, and I, th I think a move like that. Whether I I don't know what shape it would take because I don't know anything about hardware or really software for that matter. But I just yeah. think that um, opening up these these channels and what, what I mean by channels is like the ways in which we interact with technology and the way these technologies interact with each other have been orchestrated by particular parties um, and parties yeah. whose ethics may not align with, you know, the greater, the greater good or the greater need, Absolutely. like, you know, their context. Like, so if we've, we've got these entire ecosystems of products that are being built on top of each other um, that are all 
like the the architecture of which is is antithetical to what we need to flourish you know it's it's at odds with our with our um our needs our civilizational needs and the idea of like how we how we move past that um it's it's tough like there are just so many all these problems that like all require that there are dramatic problems that require a lot of attention um and our tensions rub from us and I don't even know where to focus. You know what I mean? There's just, yeah. there's so much. And I think a lot of people kind of feel this. There's you kind of get overwhelmed by what's going on and all the, yeah. the, the competing demands, all of which seem to be, you know, huge because that's how they're being presented to us because, you know, right. they need to get those clicks. Um, I think a lot of people are kind of just tuning out or just like, you know, getting sucked into the, the forever scroll or into Netflix or whatever, because the, the, the demands that the, or like the constant barrage of this intense information is really, um, exhausting. Yeah. 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 I, I believe incentives ultimately have a huge role to play here. And I don't just mean financial because incentives are already, uh, used and exploited by media corporations and social media in the sense that people uh, it's, it's very easy to vent outrage about something that upsets you. uh, And it's, it's satisfying in a way you don't have to go to a protest and put your body at risk. You can just go and you get this, you get to vent. Yep. And that's, that, that's, a, that's a psychological need being uh, not met, but being coped with. And the, the, the realm of incentives goes far beyond finance and traditional game theory. It goes into what people need in here. And uh, those psychological incentives are being leveraged uh, to extract attention from us right now. And what crypto networks allow us to do uh, and what I'm uh, meaning to do with idea markets is to uh, incentivize uh, greater care and interest and curiosity and peace of mind and discipline uh, by strengthening our natural desire for those things, our natural desire for truth with the added financial incentive. Uh, what what inspired it was when I first started trading crypto in 2017, I would go on 4chan, you know, the anonymous message board and, and listen to all the anonymous people share all the hot tips on the, on the micro caps, all the, on the long shots. And everybody was saying, uh, show me this, tell me about that. What's, what's undervalued. What am I missing? And I was struck by the characteristic uh, ferocious curiosity that everybody had. Everybody wanted to be told, what am I missing? Uh, what am I wrong about? What's the new thing that's going to blow everyone's minds? What's everybody else missing? These are all exactly the kinds of questions that everybody needs to be asking all the time about everything. So if we can bring this uh, sort of profit motive, this uh, market-based financial reward incentive to public discourse, it will uh, strengthen us against 
the uh, social and psychological incentives that are being used to keep us dumb. Mm. And it's a very exciting prospect to earn a living from being as well informed as you can, as you possibly can be. Yes, yes, it really seems to uh, solve a lot of problems at, at once. That you yeah. kind of surface surface these hidden geniuses and get paid to do so. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, it's just like a. I don't know what the what analogy I'm trying to think of, but it's a catalyst for truth. It's like, yeah. it's, it's, it's finally bringing together truth and, uh, incentives. There's multiple incentives that fit into it though. It's like not just financial, but it's the signaling you get the, the ability to signal that like I know stuff because here's my portfolio, you know, exactly. like there's, there's a lot of awesome incentives that, that all feed into it. And it's that beneficial, right? Cause yes. like more truth in the world is better. Like truth is an ordering force. It's and this precisely. It's, it's technically yes. true. Like truth yes. brings order to the world. Yes. Fucking amen. Can yeah, fucking? yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. That, right, cool. Sorry, kids. I don't think there are kids. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. If there's, no one's ever complained. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes you got to get messy. Truth. Truth is an ordering force. I just love that so much. I had to emphasize it. I, hell yeah, yeah, man. Well, it's it's yeah. technically the case, right? Because. The world, like all organisms, are embodiments of order, right? Like from the smallest, from the very self-replicating molecule. Are you reading my future books? How do you have this information? This is just what I'm into. Are you, are you writing yeah. this stuff? Well, not quite exactly, but sort of. Yeah, yeah, me too. Up here, like I've, I've got lots yeah. of half-baked shit written everywhere. Um, but this is what I'm really interested in from a, like I'm studying philosophy. Um, yeah. I'm fascinated with the like we, we had this idea that we cannot know um there's no uh foundation for for ethics for for morality that there's this divide between the way the world is and the way that we should act within it but i think that the that the way the world is constituted the way information flows the ways that like basically the way the world is really can tell us what is good and how we should act because I mean, for one, all of our intuitions about good and evil and right and wrong have evolved, right? They're all dependent upon these evolutionary processes that have shaped us. And what I think yeah. is th those map onto um, some underlying objective good, some underlying ethic. Um, and a part of that is truth because it has to be. Because if, you, yeah. if, you're, making, if you're acting based on shitty information, things break. You know, yes. the, the, the proof is in the pudding. That so, exactly. Yes. Which, which grants like physical and, you know, truth isn't this object. It isn't this thing that just exists in the ether, right? It's embodied. It's, um, it's instantiated in matter, right? It's this yeah. particular arrangements of, of matter, um, give rise to, or uh, it's what information is locked. It's, 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 it is information. It's what it, information is contained within and different arrangements have different degrees of value because of their, their utility, their usefulness, like how they enable organisms or people or organizations or let's say entities or agents to act in the world. Um, they, and we can measure the success or how good that information is. Um, we can quantify it. It's like how, like the way I think about it is how does this, how does information enable agents to manipulate the world around it. And I don't mean manipulate in a pejorative sense. I just mean like to interface with, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can measure that by 
you know, in energetic or informational terms, right? Like the more, like this is why we are so powerful because we can actually um, manipulate the world more than any other organism that has come to be. We can harness the energy of atoms. We can, like the amount, like the amount of energy that we can actually harness is just, is so great. And that's a consequence of our, our understanding of the world. And that understanding brings order to the world because we have to create structures that enable us to do this. And it's, it's technically order, right? So we started out as the yeah. smallest little organism ever. And then over millions of years by encoding understanding into our DNA, into our biology, we have generated more and more order and we've developed a greater and greater capacity to, to manipulate the world around us. Absolutely. And that's Absolutely. truth. Truth Absolutely. is embodied. Truth is, we are truth, right? It, yes. Yes. And truth, truth as orderliness, I really, really like. And that's, that's part of the thesis of idea markets that if we give the public the ability and the motivation to seek truth, that we will converge toward more uh, harmony and unity uh, because the truth is good for everybody. Mm. And the, the opposite is also true, right? Like yeah. lies destroy. Yeah. Like bridges yeah. fall, societies collapse. And this is something that I'm really, um, I'm quite concerned about i wrote something last year about the internet and control and how it's a global human rights issue the fact of the matter is that not everyone in the world has access to like has unfettered internet access and countries uh they have been and they are continuing to and even more so now are interfering with internet access and they're censoring content and when you like given that we are informational beings like we act within the world based on our understanding of it. And that is our understanding of the world is dependent upon the information that we take in and process. And, you know, um, given that, that these, yeah. So so given that, and the fact that most of us get our information from the internet by controlling what we have access to, these governments can, you know, they can manufacture consent. They can present what reality looks like to us. Um, And, if we make this, if we live in democratic countries, which you know some of us do, it, decisions could become too democratically that are completely at odds with reality. And when that happens, you know, I think what did I say? Like um, structures built on falsehoods crumble, and the same is true for societies. It's just a, it's just a, it's a question of time, and it's a deeply concerning trend that we're seeing. You know, I mean, particularly in China. I, I think we'll come to China soon because I think it's um, it's an important part of this discussion. Um, but we are seeing the these information highways restricted, and that the the policemen, are, you know, that these states are saying this is what you can see and this is what you can't. This is what the truth is. This is what it's not. Um, they're trying to take what they've done with mainstream media, let's say. I mean, I don't think that's officially correct. Maybe we all kind of think it is, but it's not widely um, accepted. Perhaps they're trying to control what we, what we have access to. Um, And crypto could be our savior. It, uh, it, it could, Uh, the, the propaganda techniques of the East versus the West are sort of complementary. They sort of have this yin yang relationship. 
where the Chinese approach is very uh, obvious and restricted. You're not allowed to look at this, and it's because we say so. And the uh, Western approach is covertly is 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 covert. It's not it's not obvious. It's oh, we stand for freedom of the press, but the press all says the same things, and it's not very good. And yeah. if you say anything else, you're a crazy bad person who's uh, no one's going to listen to, and you know go you know go have pain. Just becomes them. a conspiracy theory. They've been exactly yes. Conspiracy theories are like the hate against them. It's like weaponized. They've been weaponized against truth. You know, yeah, if, if, exactly. if you wish to discount, if you don't want to, if you don't want people to talk about something, you just kind of make it a conspiracy theory, and then yeah, you you just this right. huge reputational capital that can be lost. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, the uh, my my friends in China like to say, uh, at least in China, we know the media is lying to us, and of course now in in America we know that more too. But uh, there's there's no there's there's still very much a pretense here of freedom of the press uh, and all that jazz. Yeah, I think the um, I'm curious to see what happens with China and crypto. And like, I read this piece in the Atlantic yesterday. I think it was called the, book, the Panopticon is already here, and the Panopticon is this idea of, um, I think it was initially a, a type of prison. I could, I could be completely off here, but I think it was put forth by, um, the father of utilitarianism describing about describing prisons or something. Basically the prisoners would be in this circular prison where they could be seen from all angles at all times or yeah. stuff like that. The, the, the general idea of the Panopticon is that every move you make is watched and China is leading the way in orchestrating a digital panopticon where literally right. everything that you do is tracked through facial recognition, um, gait analysis, uh, what you post on social media, how active you are, how you interact with certain posts, which posts you do not interact with. Um, all of these, these um, data points are being brought together to generate um, digital, uh, well, identities in a way, like who people are and how they operate. And these identities uh this data is being used to interfere with people's lives and you know give them access to like stop them from going on buses or trains or enrolling their kids in certain schools and all of that um yeah. and they are perfecting this technology at the moment using the the uyghurs i think as like a, a test case that they're, they're they're taking this you know this population like a minority in the country and they are just yeah. doing disgusting things to them uh trying to perfect this technology to roll out to the rest of the rest of the country. And then from what I understood from this piece, from the, from this article is that they want to export it to other authoritarian countries. So just other countries over this overseas, like, Oh yeah, here's, here's our, um, you know, here's some uh, surveillance equipment. Here's the, the technology that runs on it. Uh, here's the software. Um, by the way, you know, you're going to be using our, um, uh, our data centers, our programs, we're going to have access to some of that data. And they're just slowly extending this, this, you know, cyber skeleton hand across, um, yeah, across the world. And it's something, I think it's one of the things I'm most concerned about. Like, I think this shit's all over the the cold war because it was just like big dumb weapons, right? Like this is like, this is smart warfare. This is information warfare. Um, and 
America has like a big part of this is artificial intelligence and the, you know, the ability to process and make sense of this information. And I think American companies do that better, but there is no one operating at the level of state, like, like, like China. Right. right. Yeah. It's and like, yeah, it's very on the surface. And I'm, I'm concerned that because China is just so large and it's got so much power and it's growing so quickly and the West can't get a shit together. Like technologically, we are just useless. I mean, okay, let me just, let me qualify that because like we're not useless, but like. I, 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 can I take a guess? Yep. Guess what you mean? I did uh, live in China for about six months. Okay. I loved it, to be honest. It was Beijing in 2017. And at that time, uh, people were using WeChat to send payments to each other uh, just for everything. You you could scan a QR code with your phone to check out a, at a convenience store. There would be homeless people with a QR code on a sign and that you'd pay them with WeChat and they'd receive it with WeChat. The uh, cardless, uh, touchless, wireless uh, QR code payments was just so advanced and ubiquitous and ingrained and it hadn't even begun to begin in the United States. Uh, so yes, they've definitely uh, leapfrogged a lot of the legacy infrastructure that uh, is still uh, serving as ballast to the United States ascendancy. So is, you were going to say yeah, that? yeah, that sort of stuff, that sort of stuff. And just yeah. the general, um, the tech awareness or technology that governments seem to have and have embedded in their services um, like yeah. the fact of the matter, like the fact that I need to still do a lot with paper for, with the government, it just doesn't. Yeah. What, what is mind. that? Right. Yes. Like I've got, and, uh, I've, I, yeah. I've got some paperwork that's being mailed to me that I need to sign and then mail back. And I was like, surely I can do this. Yeah, what is this? 1850? Get out of here with that shit. <laughs> it's, it's absurd. And like, the, you know, if it's, if it's a digital signature, like surely like I, sh- I could use my voice print or th- there are all these ways in which I could just verify that I give consent for something, right? My voice print, my, I could speak as, you know, a password, blah, 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 blah. Like there's so many ways in which these things could be made better, but like, I guess there's no incentive or I don't know what the problem is, but in a world yeah. where like, I think a lot of history has been dictated by arms races, right? Um, at the end of the day, violence speaks. Violence is the determining factor in which culture survives and which one doesn't. Um, I'd like to qualify that just slightly, just as once. Uh, that it's it's persuasion, it's it's decisions, and violence has been a very frequently used tactic of persuasion throughout history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you see, you see uh, independence movements like like Gandhi's in India. Uh, me a lot of hope that persuasion doesn't need to be uh, a violent conflict. And yeah, that's that's a really guess. good thread. I read I, yeah. I read that again this morning. Um, oh, cool. highly, highly, highly recommend that to people. Um, maybe we, maybe we, we can touch on that here. Um, it's that the general thesis is that nonviolence um, changes the the incentives for, um, for the, the aggressors. Let's say for, for the yeah. oppressor. Yeah. yeah, and that yeah. by if you. Um, well, I'll, I'll let you, this is your work. I'll let you explain it rather than me try oh, to sure. stumble through it. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So the, 
what rules the world is ultimately decisions. And in order to force your enemies to make the decisions you want, typically you would have resulted to warfare. You kill their people so many times that they say, I give up, I will make the decision that you want me to make. That's called a surrender. And people think of such decisions and big changes requiring war because so often that has been the method of persuasion. But uh, nonviolent tactics like those employed by Gandhi operate by changing the incentives of the adversary, of the person you want to, uh, whose mind you want to change. In his case, the British were occupying India and doing so unjustly and being uh, oppressive and generally uh, overstaying their, their whatever welcome they may have had as colonizers. And in order to convince the British to leave them alone, uh, Gandhi used nonviolent protest to make uh, continuing to try to rule India more trouble than it was worth. And uh, he, he did that without, of course, uh, starting a war, without fighting the British, without costing uh, a, a great many lives not this sort of nonviolent movements are fighting they are fighting yet and people get hurt in fights you uh the the line that i love from uh, from the movie about gandhi's life is that uh fighting fighting hurts you will not deal blows but you will receive them the the british killed many indians who were participating in these uh, nonviolent protests. And that was, uh, that ends up playing right into the hands of the protesters because it becomes very clear to the international community who the aggressors are. If uh, the protesters had been uh, violent in response or done anything uh, that was morally objectionable, then the British could have easily been justified in saying, well, we were just trying to keep the peace or something like that. And you're, we're kind of seeing a lot of these tactics um, played out in the United States right now, where defensive movements by protesters are uh, poorly thought out or executed with poor discipline or infiltrated by disruptive groups that uh, wish to disrupt them. And by uh, not being transparently innocent, they allow their oppressors to say, we were just keeping the peace. We were uh, just trying to control these violent thugs, these rioters, etc." cetera. Uh, so the maintenance of, of the impression of, of, of one's own innocence in a protest is extremely important in its, in its effectiveness. In fact, uh, you might even crudely call it weaponized innocence. This disciplined practice of, of innocence to make the uh, moral costs of uh, oppression uh, astronomically uh, high. And 
this over time is, is what shifted the opinion of the uh, international community, of the British public, of the British uh, government that was expending a great deal of money to keep their British forces there, trying to control a, an Indian population that would simply not cooperate. They would simply not do what the British told them to do, and they wouldn't fight, they wouldn't kill the British occupying soldiers. But if, if he said, go over there, they would say, I'm fine right here, thanks. No. no. And the, uh, these, this incentive shift is what convinced the British leadership that uh, leaving India alone was a wiser uh, use of time and energy than continuing to uh, try to occupy a country that would not participate in that occupation uh, and would also not fight back enough to uh, make violent suppression uh, seem excusable either. So I hope that kind of makes some sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought it was, um, like I'll, I'll link to the, the Twitter thread um, in the show notes, just so if people can um, can check it out. But yeah, it's, please it's, do. That's that's more organized than this little soliloquy. Oh uh, yeah, look, that's one of the benefits of writing because like I'm pretty scattered as it is. I think yeah. <laughs> I, I sometimes just jump all over the place and I, I lose myself in the in the threads. So I think writing is a it's it's always it's always good to just um, whatever you're whatever you're talking about. It's always good to have some written work behind it, just so that you can say like, look, if that didn't make any sense go and check out this stuff that's actually coherent. Though what you said was coherent, so don't worry. Great, thank you. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about um, this, like war and how violence, how war has changed. And, you know, we kind of went on this detour for about the, you could say the logic of violence. Um, but we've gone from brute force weapons to artificial intelligence. So this is, yeah. it hasn't become obvious yet, but this is where it's all going. And yeah. um, the ability to just disrupt infrastructure through using through code uh, rather than weapons is, I think, a, is, you know, it's a problem that isn't widely spoken. It's not spoken about widely enough. And the fact of the matter is, at least from my very, from my layman's understanding, China seems to be leading the world in their technological prowess and then being able to flex that. I don't know how good the US is, but I think that's where the war, the next war will be fought. It'll be through hackers disabling local infrastructure, turning off um, power stations uh, or just using AI and bots to influence opinion and to try to rig things. I don't really know, but I'm, I'm concerned that because we aren't as technologically advanced in a way, even as a society or as an awareness of, um, of, of this technology that, um, if things do come to a head with China, um, over the next few decades, it, it, we might be in a bad position. I'm just, I'm just against, I'm, I think, you know, totalitarianism, anti-freedom i'm just completely against that um sure. so yeah. and I, th I think that we'll lose in the long run because like one of the awesome things is you know this idea of truth being um central to order like um the, the physics is there's i did i did a um an interview with a guy called adrian bejan on this thing called the constructor law of thermodynamics and um 
the fact of the matter is that innovation um, and all the good all the good things that we like are dependent upon freedom, right? And in the, in the long run, those that are more restrictive will lose. Um, obviously, with some qualifying statements there, but um, yeah, I've. It's just a, it's it's a very bizarre time, and yeah, this is. Uh, if I would characterize this time, it's sort of like there's a wide spectrum of possible futures, and virtually everything is inside of it. Uh, I, I've. I feel and I I think a lot of people feel this sort of unprecedented uncertainty as to where the train tracks or hist- of history are, are leading. Uh, what's happening right now is already so many different types of unprecedented uh, that we can't use precedent to anticipate very much. So the the possible futures are really for us to consider and prepare for as 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 hedges, as as possibilities mm-hmm. rather than as certainties or uh, anything reliable like we might have been used to. Yeah, and to create, I think now's the best time to like if you've got an idea for the future, yeah. now's the time to try to build it rather than Absolutely. you know be observers. That's a much much more productive way to think about it. That it's it's a crucial crucial moment to to help um, help create the future and help help decide which of those realities we end up inhabiting. Hmm. So, with regards to idea markets, like where's the project at? Like, how can I invest now? Could I start buying into you know New York Times now, or what's the? Yeah, there's there's a beta. But you wouldn't want to put much money into it because it's it's really temporary while we build out the final version and get the smart contracts audited and everything and uh, build the public facing platforms that it is is ready to use. Um, but much of the technical work and and research has has been done, so we're really uh, not far from from launching in that in that regard. We're aiming to have something out in, in September, probably late September. And that will probably be uh, accessible, um, not quite as easily as a typical stock market, but we're gonna, we're gonna make it as easy as we possibly can. Uh, we're gonna use uh, the, the most user-friendly interfaces that, that we can come up with without needing a, uh, a trading license. A, a, a legal license, um, but ultimately our goal is to make uh, trading credibility on idea markets as easy and familiar as using Robinhood or any other stock market experience. Uh, that, that's really our goal. That we want this to be for everybody. Um, so that's that's a, a very high priority. Yeah, but sure. um, most most of the hard hard stuff. Uh, and the fundamental work has has been done. I'm proud to say. Yeah, nice, nice. Um, which currencies will be could, uh, will be available to trade in? Sure. So uh, on the crypto side, it runs on the Ethereum network, so it relies heavily on Dai and Ethereum. And so if you're in the crypto world, 
it, it would be easy to interface with the market through those. Um, but our goal is to first launch uh, in a way that makes US dollars uh, acceptable. And if you're not in the crypto world, all these terms are unfamiliar and strange to you. Uh, we're, our intention is to make it so that you don't have to think about that at all. That, like I mentioned, it just feels like Robin Hood and all the crypto stuff happens behind the scenes. Mm. Uh, but first it will be, it will be us dollars. And, uh, I'm thinking the, that there's a possibility that we'll make separate markets for separate currencies as a way to sort of roughly, uh, localize or geo prioritize, uh, different regions. Cause if, if people are spending rupees in the United States, it's not very helpful. If people are spending dollars in India, uh, it's, it's, it, it may confuse the, the priorities of, of the actual people affected by this. So uh, that's, that's our, our plan for international fiat currency. Mm. It's an interesting space to play in. Yeah. Like there's, you can't just like Google, how do I do this? You know, <laughs> the answers to all these questions haven't really been yeah. explored in a way. You're kind of just you know, approaching new territory. Yeah. So it's, it's a high priority to keep things very simple and familiar. And I, I suppose that's a good summary of, mm. uh, of our short and medium term ambitions. Yeah. I think that's one thing that's actually held crypto back because it's just not easy to understand what the hell is going on. Like you just yeah. go to a website and crypto sites are built for crypto people. Yeah. And I've got a decent understanding of like, you know, some semblance of awareness of technology and crypto and all that, like how some of these things work. And I go to these websites and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what, I need to do here. How do I get this? You know, how does it all fit together that we need like really good introduction to like, we need, I think we need good or better crypto communication and better like uh, user interfaces or perhaps websites that just kind of like, I think yours has a, a you know, a good job of it compared to many of the other platforms because um, I think a lot of the websites are focused on talking about the technology and why the technology is awesome, but like you don't hear Apple doing that right they don't say oh we've got the f they do say we've got good processes and all that but it's all about what you can do with it it's about the benefits yeah. not the yeah. the features themselves um yeah because my mom doesn't give a shit about you know like right why would you today's sick graph you know like oh yeah right who cares it's good on you for knowing that shit yeah yeah um, well it's just it's just, yeah it's a really fancy i was talking about it the other day it's like a super fancy word for something that's actually not too complicated yeah yeah um, yeah, it is, it's very fancy. There's lot, lots, of, lots of fanciness. Yeah. Um, so, what, what are you currently excited about? I mean, other than your your, your project, what's uh, uh, what's been gripping you at the moment? Um, the first thing that came to mind is I mentioned earlier the New York Times talking about UFOs in a new way, basically, mm. and that's exciting to me because I've been. Uh, researching fringe topics including ufos for probably five or six years i like i like to discover undervalued ideas i like to look for what's the thing everybody's missing what's the yeah. exciting big breakthrough that's out there that people just aren't paying attention to and uh so I, idea markets is 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 built for me in, yeah. in that way as well i love it so yeah, Have you yeah. Um, come across um, Graham Hancock? Graham Hancock, yeah. I've glancingly 
come across him. Yes, I have not not done at all a deep dive, but I know he's a respected figure in those kinds of circles. So check out his interview with Joe Rogan and Randall Carlson. Basically, like the general idea is that um, civilization might have existed a lot longer ago than we previously thought. Like we currently yes, think that. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. And so I think we we thought that the first civilizations cropped up, you know, ten thousand years ago, something like that. Um, but there's evidence that there are structures that are at least 12,000 years old and that what it looks like is about 12,000 years ago, um, meteor or comet impacted into, um, I think Canada or where Canada is today. Back then it was under a sheet of ice that was like a mile thick and caused a tremendous amount of water to melt and cascade across the earth and caused, you know, tremendous devastation. Um, and, they think that it was this event that could have caused what basically the, I think the general idea is that there were civilizations scattered across earth that were far more advanced than we give them, that we currently give them credit for. And that this cataclysmic event kind of wiped out humanity. Um, well, you know, not wiped out, but, you know, reduced our population by like, you know, 90% or something. And that over the past 10,000 years, it's just been us picking up the pieces and coming back to, you know, like figuring stuff out again. Um, there's a place I think in Turkey called Gobleki Tepe, which is about 12,000 years old. Um, and it was, it's this, it's this um, archeological site with all these different structures that has been buried. I think like it was actively buried um, for some reason and, and it's huge. And the soil that they dated there is 12,000 years old. So it was buried 12,000 years ago, but we don't know how long, um, it was standing before then. And I yeah. think there's little ev- there's evidence of this, of, of these little pockets everywhere. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. So it's, it's just fascinating because like all of our, like I think most cultures have this story of the great flood, right? Yep. And yep. something like a great flood happened 12,000 years ago. Um, so I'm really excited for what, you know, take drones and then you take them to mapping the ocean floor. You know, so we, we take this technology and then we just apply it to completely mapping the ocean floor. I'm, I'm painfully curious about what that will uncover. Yeah, yeah. Hidden, hidden yeah. civilizations and cities. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if factions of, you know, various militaries or military industrial complex companies know an unbelievable amount about all this already. Um, not only from technology we know they have like satellites that could probably send radio waves to the bottom of the earth and map it you know like a piece of cake yeah yeah true. Bottom, bottom of the ocean not bottom of the earth bottom of the ocean yeah but uh uh yeah um and i, I think one of one of the one of the ideas behind idea markets is that oh there's this there's this great quote by marshall McLuhan. You're familiar with Marshall McLuhan. Uh, his famous, most famous quote is the medium is the message. But this other one I really love. And what he said was, the biggest secrets are kept by public incredulity. It's not that the knowledge is kept secret, cloistered, never gets out. It's that it gets out, but it never gets cool. It never gets authorized. And so with the invention of the internet, uh, I'm very 
eager to see what pieces can be put together, what it turns out we already know, but don't publicly uh, acknowledge. And the kinds of things that you're talking about, like these ancient human civilizations, um, uh, I don't I don't believe it's a coincidence that you're not the first really smart person I've heard mention mention this when how many years ago it would have sounded absolutely Bonkers. insane. But it, it would have sounded like, you know, tabloid, you know, checkout counter, you know, at the grocery store tabloid kind of thing. And now it's, you know, a, a, a matter of serious discourse as it's always deserved to be. Yeah. So uh uh I'm 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 excited. I'm excited about that. Yeah, definitely check it out. Um, yeah. it's, it's good because I think in that interview, I think it's true. They're, they're long. They're very long, um, but it's worth diving into. Randall Carlson, I think he's a, he's a geologist, and he kind of walks through the dramatic landscape changes that have occurred in America over the, the, in, during that period of time and how just there's evidence of just ice and water just cascading down the Americas and like the depositing of boulders that are like, you know, a hundred tons or 150 tons or something up in mountains. And that rock originates far further North. So like that wouldn't have happened unless there was either giants running around playing catch, you know, across the, <laughs> across the Americas yeah. or perhaps a glacier that could carry it down. Um, there's just all these things, many of which I've, I've kind of forgotten. Um, but it's just fascinating. fascinating yeah, those are, yeah, absolutely. There's just, there's there's so much so much more out there. The common knowledge is just so rarely the best knowledge that mm. uh, there's this there's there's an enormous amount to discover f- from among things we think we already know well. It's very exciting. Yeah, I think one of the biggest developments in perhaps the history of our species is this talk of aliens and like it's going full on mainstream. Yeah, um, I've. I had an experience about 10 years ago, five years ago, right? It's not too, it's nothing too fascinating as many of these stories are, but I was just sober, which is important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was looking up at the stars in, um, on the sunshine coast in Australia. And I just saw these five or six floating orbs that were a couple hundred meters up in the air and they're floating in formation, you know, moving at a uniform speed. And then something happened and they just rearranged very fluidly into another formation while maintaining their speed and just disappearing across the night sky. And there was, it was silent. Like there's no sound way lower than a plane would fly. Um, and even a drone, because I've heard drones at that height and you can kind of hear sure, sure. just these floating orbs. And nobody makes orbs of light. No earthly company that we know of makes orbs of light. I would like one if they did, you know, it it wouldn't be in the garden, you know, just these little floating orbs, just, that'd be lovely. Yeah, totally. Totally. But the, the coolest thing is, and like it was the night, the night before was the night of the Gemini meteor shower. Okay. And I saw like 11 shooting stars that night. And I was like, I'm going to wrap these motherfuckers into one wish. Cause that's going to be super powerful. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm not going to just make 11 wishes. I didn't have time for that. I'm just going to bundle them. And I wished what? to contact aliens or to see aliens. That's amazing. The night before I, I, I shit you that's not. Amazing. And the next night that happened. That's I mean, amazing. It's just a dramatic coincidence, but I, there's no explanation for what I saw. I, I do not think that is a coincidence. Uh, I've, I've heard stories like that before. Um, and that, that's awesome. Yeah. But, well, uh, no, it would, it would, it would be absolutely, um, 
plausible that advanced life forms have like a consciousness radio that they're listening for people who are who have 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 the right intent and are interested in and capable of handling uh some kind of contact uh mm. it just makes makes perfect sense uh, wouldn't mind the actual yeah. contacts like a fist bump right <laughs> yeah. well uh i'll, I'll honestly <laughs> I'm at the point where i'm like there's hope yeah yeah seriously seriously I really think there's hope like i've been saying this for a while even before then that my dream job is earth ambassador like to you know Go off there are a lot of planets aliens. out there. They'll probably need you. They'll probably yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. But just to go with one of these um these alien races and then just kind of represent Earth and have a conversation, you know, maybe come home every now and again. But just like the idea of how what we could learn about the world, yeah. um, just is is baffling. I would I'd have no problem sending you as a representative of Earth. Just so you know, you, you oh, got well, thank you. I got thank that's, you. That, that's a big job, but I think you could do it. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I, I maybe I, I wouldn't put myself as the first person, but like if there were many planets, I wouldn't like to be one of them. But like, oh I yeah, know. sure. And I, I wouldn't burden you with being with being like you know Benjamin Franklin or whatever. But yeah, you know, if, yeah, you want, yeah. if you want to go to you know the the Liechtenstein of the Milky Way, that's my <laughs> idea. yeah. Uh. So is there anything else that you've been, uh, that you're excited about or that's been gripping you or, um, in perhaps yeah. in the crypto world, like in this, this, the developments that you think are really promising? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are, there are many things. Uh, it's a, it's a struggle to, to navigate all the exciting breakthroughs and potential breakthroughs that are that are surfacing these days um one thing that i like kind of that might sort of tie a few of our previous discussions together is uh i mentioned the decentralized banking software and how the user experience is getting very good if you go to outlet.finance um, this is one of the companies that's building an app a uh, like a savings account app that feels very much like a regular savings account. It's USD in the front. You only ever deal with US dollars. Uh, but in the back, they use these crypto networks to earn the amounts of interest that you can only get from crypto networks that you can't get in US dollars from a typical bank. Uh, and that's the beginning of, of this sort of gap bridging. Uh, yes. It's only really not used because it's, because it's strange. But uh, it's it's the kind of thing that that can change our our relationship to finance, no matter who you are and whether you know know anything about crypto. So would you say that's a good way to like? I haven't I don't have any experience with uh, DeFi, so I'd be yeah. I think curious. it'd be a, it'd be a great way to to start to feel the benefits without having to do the slightest bit of research or anything like that. Yeah, I think I think that'd be a good place to start. It's it's when you when you mentioned earlier about going to DeFi websites and being super confused. I was thinking, I think this website might be safe. Yeah. And, it's, and, uh, and, yeah. and for people who want to learn more about crypto yeah. and just this space, where would you recommend people kind of go to get their information? Um, I had a privileged blockchain education and that I had to be immersed in it for a long time for my work. 
So I never went through the phase of uh, dabbling as a beginner and sort of like getting lessons or something like that. So I'm, I actually don't really know uh, who to recommend for the casual uh, person who's just beginning to be interested. Because uh, my oh, experience was, was being dive in. Oh yeah, Balaji's a fantastic uh, thinker and an influence. I disagree with a lot of his solutions about uh, the future of trust and, and truth. But uh, his, I completely agree with his diagnoses and I think his heart is absolutely in the right place. Um, and now he's, he's, a, he's a great person to follow to sort of get a sense of, of what's possible um, and to, to learn about crypto in a more sort of under the hood way, learn to use it and those kinds of things. I'm really not sure, though I am aware that Coinbase has a platform now called Coinbase Earn which will actually pay you a little bit to learn a little about uh, crypto and, and how it works. So kind of like... Uh, you getting paid it, to learn. Works, yeah, and it's not much. It's not much. It's like a few bucks here and there. But it adds up if you do them all. And the idea is you, you watch a couple of videos, you answer a couple of questions. And when the website has... has established that you understood the material and it's not hard. It's like those silly, like uh, driving school kind of videos. Kind yeah. of very, very easy. Um, then they give you, they give you a little of the crypto that they're just teaching you about. So if, if nothing else, you can at least make a few bucks uh, learning about some of the topics there. And, and the, the introductions are uh, perfectly adequate, I think, to start out. Awesome. Um, if people want to follow your work online, um, where should I direct them to? Or where where sure. can people find you? Yes, uh, on Twitter at uh, HarmonyLion1. Harmony, like musical harmony, and lion, like the big cat. HarmonyLion1 is my Twitter account. Idea Markets is at ideamarkets.org. And uh, my personal site is michaelias.com. And that's awesome. just kind of a good central place. Yeah. Well, I think I will wrap it up there, Mike. Thank you uh, very much for taking the time. It's been a, it's a pleasure. Great pleasure, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's been it's been fun. And uh, let me know when you get that fist bump. But I'm sure we'll talk. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Thanks again for tuning in. Um, if you'd like to follow up on some of the things discussed in this uh, episode, just head to the show notes at samhbarton.com/podcast. Uh, and if you'd like to uh, check out some of Mike's work, um, you can go to his website, mikeelias.com, uh, follow him on Twitter at HarmonyLion1, or go to ideamarkets.org. And until next time, stay curious.